Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Good morning, church. How's everybody? Wonderful, wonderful. Mixed reviews, I feel like I heard there. Can I give you that? I got my bigger one. That's a little better. Well, good morning. Listen, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5. We're going to pick up where we left off. And while you're turning, I want to say, man, this church just rocks, man. I mean, last Sunday, the way that you guys honored Pastor Barr and Miss Betty in their retirement was just outstanding. What an amazing time we had last Sunday night. Amen. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, give, give yourselves a hand. That was really good. Really good, really good day. If you're visiting with us, if you're new to Rest Church, I want to welcome you. Thanks for being here today. Uh, my name is Bradley. I'm one of the pastors, and so we're glad that you're here. Uh, I'll mention this again at the end, but we have connection cards in the seat backs in front of you. If you would take one of those and fill that out and go to the Welcome Center in the back, uh, my left, your right, we would love to get to know you. We have a free gift for you. So, Rez, as we always do, let's welcome our guests this morning. We're glad you're here. We have sang, sung, sang or sung? My brain's not working good today, y'all. Pray for me. Uh, whichever one it is, um, about some amazing stuff this morning, haven't we? I mean, stop and think about what we have sung about. That the Spirit of God is alive in us, giving us victory, such that we rise from the ashes of defeat, that we overcome that we are victorious in Christ over trials and tribulations, yes, over hard times, difficult times, difficult marriages, over sickness, over um, you know, just financial problems, physical problems, psychological problems, emotional problems, that we can actually walk in victory even as we struggle with those things. But even more so than that, that we could have victory over sin, that we could walk victorious in some kind of power that enables us to walk in victory, that that's really what we're singing about and that's what we're studying about in the book of Romans. So I, I'm going to read our text this morning, and I hope, I'll read and then I'll pray, but I hope that you will be prayerful with me throughout this whole message, that we could get our minds around this, that God would give us wisdom in Revelation this morning. I'm going to pick up in verse 20 of chapter 5, right where we left off. We'll read the last two verses of chapter 5, then I'm going to read the first four verses of chapter 6, and then I'm going to skip and read verse 11 of chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, follow along. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Paul says, now the law, we know what that is, right? That's the law of Moses that came God gave through Moses the Ten Commandments and a lot more than that. The law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1, which, by the way, uh, if you don't know this, chapter and verse numbers were added long after this letter was written. So a lot of times those don't help you. They help us find things together. But a lot of times you'll find in the Bible that the same thought is spilling over into what is designated as the next chapter. So Paul's still on the same train of thought. What shall we say then? Sin increased because of the law. Grace abounded all the more. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then look at verse 11. So you also must consider or reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we ask desperately for your help. I feel like we're in a part of Scripture that speaks so precisely to where many of us who call ourselves Christians, saved people, people who belong to Jesus, this is something we struggle with. We struggle with this perhaps more than we struggle with our circumstantial problems, whether it's sickness or relationships or finances or career, um, whatever our circumstantial difficulties are, I think this issue of sin and victory over it is probably what most Christians struggle with the most. And yet, Paul has such profound things to say about this that you inspired him to write. So, Holy Spirit, help us see, help us hear, Lord, that we can walk in the kind of victory that we've been singing about this morning. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. On January the 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued an executive order known as the Emancipation Proclamation. And the first paragraph of that executive order reads like this. That on the first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state The people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States shall be then thenceforward and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons and will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom." Now, I want you to imagine that you are a slave in January of 1863, and you pick up a newspaper, and you read about this executive order from President Lincoln. How do you feel? What are you thinking? Are you free? Yeah. Legally, which... What other way is there? Legally, you're free. You're a free person. But oh, how difficult it must have been, perhaps, for many slaves in the South, in the Confederate States, to read this executive order from President Lincoln and actually feel free. To actually imagine living into this new reality because the effect of the order was immediate. Immediately, if you're a slave, you're free. But you can imagine, can't you? Some of them who still live with masters who are in rebellion against the United States government, how difficult it must have been for them to imagine actually walking out that freedom. Perhaps others felt like, you know, slavery's all I've ever known. Sure, this executive order from President Lincoln says that I'm free, but what would it actually look like for me to live free? There's a difference, isn't there, between something being true, something being a reality for us, and then actually beginning the journey to live that out? Right? I tell uh, couples that are engaged and they come to Mary and I for premarital counseling, I tell them all the time, I said, look, on whatever date you've set, you're going to be married. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a marriage. Right? You can be legally married, but walking that out and living that out is a challenge unto itself, isn't it? I think we've got a similar problem. For those of you that are Christians, you're saved, you're born again, let me ask you this question. Are you free? I'm going to try it again. Those of you that are Christians, that are saved, that are born again, are you free? Now, you don't have to answer out loud yet because I want you to think about it. We're in church, and when the pastor asks for a reaction, people generally just go, okay, well, I'll just say yes and amen. Do you feel free? Are you walking in that freedom? 
is the reality of what Christ has done, the work of salvation that God has brought about in you and for you, what God has done to you, are you walking in that? Are you living into that reality? It's a question we need to ask. When we left off in Romans, we considered, last left off in Romans two weeks ago, we considered the fact that none of us prior to salvation, are capable of avoiding sin. We, we, we understand that. We're born with a sin nature. We see the line, we know the consequences on the other side of the line, and we still cross the line continually, repeatedly, right? And so we asked the question last time, what's wrong with us? What is that about me? And Paul, in the latter part of chapter 5, he helped us with that a little bit by talking about original sin. He, 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 he put this forward, and it doesn't always fit neatly in our finite logic, but he said this, that when Adam sinned, when Adam fell, in some strange and mysterious way, we were not only affected by that, but we were involved in the commission of it. In Adam, we inherited guilt. In Adam, we inherited condemnation. In Adam, all sinned and therefore all die. All sinned in Adam and all became sinners because of Adam. And nobody doubts that. You don't doubt that. You know as well as I do, you have a real keen awareness of the fact that Adam's sin has had a massive impact on your life. It's why when a convicted bank robber stands before a judge and the judge is about to sentence that criminal and the criminal raises his hand and says, hey, judge, listen, I did it, but let me tell you something. I promise I'll never do it again. The judge doesn't go, oh, okay, you promise? You can go free. Why? Because we know humanity's bent towards evil and wickedness, don't we? So we know the effect of Adam's sin, but then Paul launches into this compare and contrast thing to show us that if Adam's sin has had that massive of an impact on us, how much greater must the impact be of the righteousness of Christ on our lives that we receive by grace through faith be on us? It's far superior, right? No one would disagree with that. The work that Jesus has done, the gift of righteousness we receive by grace, is, has had a far superior impact on us than the impact of Adam's sin. Yet the question remains, are we walking in that? So here's the question we're going to ask today. Last time we asked, what's wrong with me? Today, as Christians, we're going to ask the question, what has happened to me in salvation? What, what is it that's actually happened to me, all right? So let's get to work. There's an implied question between verses 19 and 20, I think. I feel the question. The question is, what's the point of the law, right? I mean, if, if God's plan, <clears throat> we've talked about this before, with God it's always plan A. God doesn't have plan B or C. If God's plan was to overcome the power of sin and death, by grace through faith, to save people through the gift of righteousness of Christ, if that was his plan from the get-go, why give the law? What possible good could come from it, right? I mean, here's another way to ask the question. If, if, if God's goal, if God's plan was eternal life by grace through faith, why not just skip this terrible thing we call human history and just get right to the end, right? Paul answers that question, okay? He gives two answers, actually. Here's the first one. Why did God give the law? Verse 20, now the law came to increase the trespass. What's the trespass? Adam's sin, right? Paul's been talking about that all throughout chapter 5. Adam's one trespass, he refers to it in the singular. Adam's one trespass is the event from which our sin nature comes, and it's from that sin nature that all the individual acts of sin we commit flow. You with me? So Paul says that the law came to increase, to magnify. Another word you could use is augment, means to increase in size or value. To augment the trespass, to make it bigger, to make it larger, to magnify it, okay? So what happens is the law comes in alongside our sin nature, 
And it gives us specific commands. Don't covet, don't lie, don't steal. And we know what happens, right? What happens when you hear don't? Do, right? It's like the proverbial pastor that, uh, or preacher that decided to do a, a, a sermon series on, on sin and morality. And so he took a period of months, maybe even a year, went through the Bible and taught on every moral law he could find in Scripture. Was as thorough and complete as he could possibly be. And when he got to the end of the series, one of his parishioners, his members, came up to him at the end and said, Pastor, thank you for doing this series. I have learned so much. I've even learned about sins that I haven't even thought about trying yet. (laughs) That's as simple as I can put it. Paul says the law came to magnify or increase the trespasses. When the law comes, it confronts that sinful nature that you and I have, and it takes that one trespass of Adam And it turns it into millions upon millions upon millions of transgressions. What did Paul say in verse 16? The free gift of the righteousness of Christ came after many trespasses. Right? So Adam's sin gave us a sin nature. The law comes along and exploits or magnifies that sin nature. And so we ask the question, God, why would you do that? Why would you give us a law... And know that all it's going to do is multiply our misery. That all it's going to do is multiply the sin. Where is all of this going? He answers that, verse 20 again. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That Greek word means grace superabounded with more on top. Isn't that awesome? In other words, there's no comparison. There's no comparison between the way in which sin increased because of the law and the way in which God's grace superabounded when the sin increased. There's no comparison whatsoever. Sin increased because of the law in order that God's amazing, superabounding grace with more on top could be magnified and put on display. Isn't that amazing? But you feel the question coming, don't you? You feel it. I feel it. It's right there. Let me read verse 21, and then we'll get to it. So that sin increased because of the law, so that grace might increase all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, sin reigned. He's personifying our sin nature like it's a ruthless king that rules over your your being a ruthless monarch, this sin nature that has complete power over us in the same way that that reigned over us in death or in the sphere of death, grace might also reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise be to God. And then here comes the question, verse one. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound all the more? Doesn't that just question just kind of roll off your tongue? It's just right there in our thinking. If God made sin increase by the law so that his grace could abound all the more, why don't we just keep on sinning? So that great God will have more and more and more and more and more and more opportunities to put his grace on display by forgiving us. Let's just keep on going. You know what the problem with that is? It's the wrong question. And oh, how much grief and misery we cause ourselves when we ask the wrong questions. It's like when my wife, Mary, comes to me and she tells me that she's stressed or she's overwhelmed. You know what my, the temptation is for me, and I know it is for a lot of husbands, when our wives come to us, they're stressed and overwhelmed. Here's the question we ask. Well, what do you want me to do for you? And I hear the chuckle, mainly from the ladies, because you know what I'm talking about. Husbands, if you don't get this, get this right now, write this down, okay? That your salvation is not going to hinge on it, but this is important. <laughs> it's the wrong question. Do you know what I've learned in 20 years of marriage? I've tried to learn. I don't always apply it well. 
When Mary comes to me and tells me that she's stressed and overwhelmed, she's not doing that because she wants me to do something for her. Most of the time. Instead, what she wants is she wants me to be something for her. Namely, an empathetic and understanding husband who gives her tenderness and love when she's stressed and overwhelmed. So if I can learn when she's stressed and she tells me that, to not ask her, what do you want me to do for you? Because she's not wanting me to really do something for her, but I can step back and ask myself, what is it that she needs me to be for her right now? Husbands, let me tell you something. Your wife, 9.999 times out of 10, will get all the help from you she needs. I'm going to wait till I get a good amen because that's good preaching right there. <laughs> we got a similar situation here. We hear Paul say, God gave the law so that sin would increase, so that grace could be put on display and magnified all the more. And what we do is we hear that and we go, well, if that's true, Paul, what should I do? What should I do in the wake of that? Should I sin more? And Paul's not trying to talk to us about what to do in the wake of God's superabounding grace, he's trying to talk to us about who we are in Christ. It's not about doing as much as it's about being. Paul is asking the question, do you know who you are in Christ? If you just zoom out and ask that question, instead of, should I just keep on sinning? Or this is the way a lot of Christians ask it. Well, if... if where sin increased, grace is going to abound on the more. Can I keep on sinning? Maybe about 50% less, but can I just keep that, you know? Instead of asking that question, we should be asking, do I understand what has happened to me because of God's superabounding grace? And the honest answer that a lot of Christians should give is, no, I don't. And let me tell you why I say that. Because if we understood, if we understood what has happened to us because of God's superabounding grace, that question in verse 1 would sound totally and utterly absurd to us. It does to Paul. And I've got one goal in this message. One goal in this message. We're only going to scratch the surface of this today. But my goal is, is that we will all leave here today feeling the absurdity of that question. Should I just keep on sinning? Paul thinks that's ludicrous. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul gives two responses. The first response is emotional. It's an emotional response. Shall we keep on sinning so grace abounds all the more? By no means, and that is so weak. I love the SV, but sometimes that's the version of the Bible that I'm reading from in our English translation. That is just incredibly weak. You look it up in the Greek, and it's really, God forbid. It's don't you even think about that. Away with that thought. That's ludicrous. Why, Paul? His second response is rational. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you know what Paul's thinking in his mind? He's thinking in his mind, for a Christian to continue in a habitual relationship with the sin nature after we've been born again, is a mechanical impossibility. That's what Paul's saying. It's mechanically impossible. How could that even happen? So here's what I want to do. Let's try to understand Paul's rationale first. And I think if we get his rationale, we'll get the emotion. Does, does that make sense? If we understand why he thinks that's mechanically impossible, then we will go, Oh, yeah, that's crazy to talk that way. 
So here, here's, if we're going to do that, we've got to define some terms, okay? So what does Paul mean by sin? What does Paul mean by sin? Here's what Paul means by sin. He's not talking about our individual acts of sin. He's talking about something deeper than that. He's talking about our sin nature. He's talking about that part of you and I that apart from rebirth, regeneration, is bent towards rebellion against God. Hostile towards God. We see the line. We know the consequences on the other side of the line. We cross the line. He's talking about the sinful nature that we all know we have. So here's what I think is helpful. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Okay, You just follow along in your Bibles or listen. And I'm going to replace the word sin with sinful nature. And I think that's going to get right to the heart of Paul's intent. So listen to this. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in the sinful nature that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to the sinful nature still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the sinful nature might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to the sinful nature. For the one who has died has been set free from the sinful nature. That's really helpful to me. Because when he says, I died to sin, he's not really talking about me dying to the individual transgressions that I commit. He's talking about that character part of me, that inner part of me that's bent towards sin. And he's saying, look, you died to that. That was killed. You've been set free from that. So how could we continue in it? What does he mean by that? Continue in or live in. It's a word that means to abide. That word is used elsewhere in the New Testament to talk about somebody living in a house. Either as a guest or that's where they permanently reside. How could we continue to live in or abide in the sinful nature? It's, it, 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 he's talking about like a cordial relationship. A socializing kind of abiding, dependence, and yielding to that sin nature. If I died to it, how in the world could I maintain that same kind of relationship with my sin nature that I had prior to God saving me? That's our condition. You understand that, right? Before we are born again, we've got an abiding, friendly, cordial socializing, yielding, depending kind of relationship with our sin nature. We give in to it. I, I'll tell you this quick story. I didn't have this in my notes, but I think it might help us. When I was in high school, all the children, well, there's some children in here. I'll try to be careful. When I was in high school, I had this friend who um, started dating a girl in, in our class. And just kind of so you'll know what was going on in me is that I really wanted to date this girl and he got her before I did. So I was a little bit upset about that. Um, but he was a good friend. We played ball together and we were talking one day and he told me that he was going out with her on Friday night and his hope and his goal was that they would take things to the next level. You know what I'm saying? And I looked back at him in shock. And I said to him, you can't do that. Are you serious? And you know what he looked back at me and said? With the most, I, I mean, he was really being genuine. He looked at me and said, why? Why? Why not? Why shouldn't I? Tell me. And I was dumbfounded. This guy didn't grow up in church. He didn't go, he, didn't, he wasn't in a Christian home. 
I don't think he was a believer at all. And he really had no concept of why that would be the wrong step to take. Why? He had a cordial relationship with his sin nature. You with me? Something's got to change on the inside of us before we even consider the possibility of overcoming sin. So that's what Paul's talking about when he says, shall we continue to live in and abide and yield to that sin nature when we have died to it? What does he mean by dying to it? You know what death is, right? Death means separation. When people physically die, they are separated from their body. Spiritual death means separation from God. Paul says, when you were saved, you were born again, God's grace found you, that gave rise to faith, God does something, the only thing I can liken it unto is surgery. God takes his surgical, his divine surgical knife, and he cuts you loose from the sin nature. This nature that once ruled over you like a tyrannical king, you've now been set free from its power. And on top of that, and we're going to get more into this in the coming weeks, you've been given a new divine nature so that you walk in newness of life. You've been set free. You're free. That's what has happened to you. That's what God has done to you, in you and for you. Salvation is not a new leaf that you turned over like a New Year's resolution, salvation is a divine interruption where God comes in like a masterful surgeon and he cuts you and I loose from this sin nature that the law exposed and magnified, but grace superabounded on top of it, and we're free. We're free. So what has happened to me? Let me read verses one through four again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So here's the conclusion. I'm going to give you a conclusion, an implication, and two practical takeaways. And we'll be done for today. The conclusion is, let's, let's track with Paul all the way through chapter 5 and this first part of 6. When Adam sinned in some strange and mysterious way, we did too. We were not only affected by it, we were involved in the commission of it. And out of that one transgression, we inherited, we were given, we were imputed, not only with guilt and condemnation, but with a sin nature that is hostile and rebellious towards God. The law comes along and exposes that all the more. We hear don't covet, what do we do? We hear don't lie, what do we do? We hear don't steal, what do we do? The, the law comes along and magnifies or it augments that one transgression and turns it into millions upon millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of transgressions. But then in the fullness of time, Christ came. He took on flesh, we sang about it. He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He laid the foundation for our justification. He died. Every sin on him was laid. Every sin you and I have ever committed, will commit, was put on him as if he did it. And then we get the free gift, the free gift of the righteousness of Christ by grace we respond in faith, and God comes in, and he does major surgery on the inmost part of us. And he sets us free. 
He turns us loose from the sin nature that ruled over us like a ruthless, tyrannical king. He sets us free, and now righteousness takes the throne and starts to rule in us. And we're given a new nature so that now we walk in newness of life. We're no longer in Adam. We're no longer united to Adam. We're united to Christ who walked through death and out the other side. So here's the implication. That's the conclusion. Here's the implication. Have you ever heard someone say, maybe you've said it yourself, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Let's just be honest. I've said that before. How many of you have said that before? Or you've heard somebody say it? Raise your hand. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I want to set fire to that this morning. As emphatically as I can put it, that is not, it is not biblically rooted thinking. It's not. What the Bible is telling us, what Paul is telling us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that, no, if you're saved, you were a sinner. And now you're saved by grace. Your character has changed. Something's different on the inside of you. And whereas sin was once natural behavior for you and for me. When we sin now, we're acting out of character because we've been set free. We have power over it. Namely, the power of God's Spirit at work in us in this new nature that we've been given because grace superabounded. We've been separated in the death of Christ from the rule and reign of the sinful nature. So we should get the emotional response from Paul now. Shall we keep on sinning that grace may abound all the more? That's crazy. That doesn't even make sense. If this is what God has done to me, in me, and for me, that's ludicrous. But, 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 but. I hear you, Bradley, but I still sin. Like I said, we, we've, we've only scratched the surface. But I'm going to give you two very simple, practical takeaways for today. Okay? And then we're going to sing about what's true. Here's number one. If you're saved, you are free. John eight thirty six. So if the Son sets you free, say it. Say it again. That's the reality. That's what's true. That's what's already happened. That's why, that's why I struggle for myself. I battle this too. When my anger gets away from me and there's the temptation to say, well, I just have a hot temper. Something that simple. It's, there's no place for the Christian to say, well, this is just who I am. I can't change it. No, God's done something on the inside of you that radically changed you. If you're saved, you are free. But perhaps similar to how some Slaves felt when President Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation. Maybe we're struggling to live into that freedom. Maybe we're struggling to imagine living into that freedom. So here's the second little practical takeaway for today. And again, there's a lot more to say. I hope you'll be back next week. If you are saved, know that you're free. Now, I hope you didn't feel a little wah, wah, wah when I said that, like I was going to give you something a little more profound than that. 
Let me tell you why I say that. In some strange and mysterious way, our knowledge and understanding of what God has done has a direct impact on our experience of the reality of it. If I'm honest, I don't fully, I struggle to get my mind around that. If God's done this, why do I struggle to live into the reality of it? And the way God has designed things, remember we're saved by grace through, faith comes by. So my faith grows or my dependence and trust grows with the level of my understanding. I think that's why God gave us a book and he gave us a sp his spirit to help us understand the book. This is why we study the Bible so hard here. It's why Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Read it, Ephesians chapter one, that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? Why would Paul pray that? Why is that even necessary? If God's already done this, why do I even have to know it? Why can't I just experience it? The way God has designed the redemptive plan is that you and I, salvation is what God has already done. He set us free. But sanctification, everybody say sanctification. Sanctification is my growth in understanding and faith, confidence, and trust in what God has already done and provided. The more I come to understand it, and the more I come to depend on it, the more it becomes my experience and not just some idea or theory out there. Because I've said this before, if God's goal was to simply get you and I to heaven, like, like if that's really the only the point, then he would have sent Jesus, he would have died, rose again, paid for our salvation, and then he would have just jerked all of us out of here. God has no problem getting man from earth to heaven. Right? Just go back and read your Bible. When he's ready for somebody, he will take them. It's not the point. God's goal is to put his superabounding grace on display by setting people like you and me free by his grace, giving us a new nature, giving us his spirit, giving us his word, we depend on the spirit, we depend on the word, and we start to walk in a newness of life. And no, he hasn't, though we are set free from it. We're going to talk about this more. Though we are set free from the sinful nature, he hasn't taken it out of us fully. It remains. That's why we still fight temptation. But here's the good news. We're free. I really think this, people. I really think this. I'm not saying that after salvation we're going to live a perfect life. I'm not saying that. But I do believe when Christians sin, when I sin, I'm giving something power over me that it has no business having. You can put your anger away. You can flee from lust. You can not look to material things to find your life. You can Experience the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no. If you're saved, you're free. If you're saved, let's read verse 11 again. If you're saved, you're free. Verse 11, so, so, you also must 
consider, reckon, you must know, you must live, you must believe, you must depend on, you must trust in the fact that you're dead to sin. You're dead to that sin nature and you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. I wonder, I just wonder if we've had such a weak understanding of salvation that we think I depend on grace because I'm never going to have any victory over sin. More often than not, I'll fall. Maybe as I get older and wiser and more mature, I'll, I'll do less stupid things. I said that when I was 20. But that's not the gospel, is it? Let's don't settle. I read one commentator this week. I, I've debated whether or not to even say this. I didn't put it in my notes, but... Maybe I'll just present it as a question. You can wrestle with it. I read one pastor commentator who said, we should really think of the sin nature now as saved Christians as like the knob of a radio that we can turn off. And I, 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 I read that, I saw that, and I went, you know, sounds about right, doesn't it? According to Paul, I wrestled with it because like you, my experience sometimes tries to tell me something different than what the truth of Scripture is telling me. But as you know, if you've been at rest for any length of time, we don't judge the Bible around here. The Bible judges us. And when we read something in Scripture that makes us go, ah, what? We need to linger. We need to pause. We need to realize that if we're saved, we're free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So I need, if nothing else, I need to walk out of here today and know that. And when the next temptation comes, when the, when the enemy whispers in my ear, I feel my pride well enough, I feel my anger well enough, I feel the temptation to look, I feel the temptation to not tell the truth because I'm afraid of the consequences. I need to know in that moment I'm free. That old Bradley has no power over me anymore. And get behind me, Bradley. I agree with you, Eric. It's get behind me, Satan, shut up. You know what the Bible says? Resist the devil and he will run like a scalded dog. The devil half the time is not our biggest problem. The biggest problem is us. And do we know and understand what God has done? Are we living into it? Are we willing to trust and believe that if I, if the Son has set me free, I'm free indeed. I want to sing about it. And I want to challenge you to not just sing words off a screen or sing lyrics off a screen, I want to challenge you to ask, and I'm challenging myself, ask the Holy Spirit, would you make this real for me? You've done this, and I want to live into it. Would you make it your prayer that you could actually live in the reality of the freedom God has brought about by His superabounding grace? Would you stand together, and we're going to pray. Praise team, you can come. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. How could I? How could I, if I've died to the sin nature, how could I continue to abide in it. 
Lord, I feel like we've settled. I feel like we have, we've undersold the gospel. We've, we've allowed our faith to be determined more by our experience than by revelation. Because my experience may tell me that I'm weak, that I'm not free. The revelation of your word, inspired by your spirit, says I am. And so that's either a paradox or that's a supernatural reality that's going to require faith for me to lean into and live into. So I'm asking that maybe just for today, we would not leave here feeling defeated, but we would leave here feeling victorious that we could celebrate this, even if it hasn't been our experience up to this point as much as we think it should have been or could have been. But could you, could you help us celebrate, not in a hyped up kind of way, not in a it does need to be emotional. But I pray that it would also be spirit-led. Holy Spirit, we give you our hearts and our lives and our minds right now. Help us worship in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.